Welcome to Papaya Talk, the podcast where we dive into the world of women's health from one generation to the next. Join us as a mother-daughter duo as we seek to empower young women through the sometimes awkward, often avoided conversation about our bodies. I'm Dr. Elisa Herrera-Set, physical therapist in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I'm Nadia Herrera-Set, public health student at Northeastern University in Boston. Together, we're going to share stories, insights, and expert advice about health, self-care, and everything in between. Hello, Nadia. Hi. Hi, Amy. Hi. (laughs) Okay, today I'm really excited to introduce Dr. Amy Amy Haas to you guys. Dr. Haas is a professor at Palo Alto University in the Department of Psychology with a specialization in clinical and prevention aspects of college student substance use. She has also been an instructor of psychology at Stanford University for the past 15 years. Her research focuses on the identification of high-risk drinking and drug use practices in college students, including the development of targeted interventions using a harm reduction model. She has collaborated with several universities in the Bay Area to guide campus prevention programming and develop new programs for reducing harmful use on campus. Her work focuses on high-risk drinking behaviors like pre-gaming, drinking game participation, and cross-fading cannabis and alcohol, Her recent work extends to severe consequences from drinking, including blackouts and risky sexual behaviors, including non-consensual acts while intoxicated. Dr. Haas received her undergraduate degree from UC Irvine, her master's in psychology from San Diego State University, and her PhD in clinical psychology from the University of South Florida, with specialized training in neuropsychology and behavioral pharmacology. She completed her pre-doctoral internship at the Palo Alto VA Healthcare System and a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco in substance abuse treatment and health services. And we are just so excited to have her today because we have tons of questions. As you can imagine, with that background, we have a lot of really um, interesting questions to ask her from a college student perspective. So I'm going to go ahead and let Nadia start. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Uh, My first question is, can you tell us a little bit about how you decided to become a psychologist and why you decided to specialize in college student substance use, um, abuse issues? Sure. Um, Well, full transparency, why I'm a psychologist is a little bit embarrassing. So um, (laughs) I... I thought I was, I went to college at UC Irvine and I thought that I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a pediatrician. And um, I kind of did chemistry like I did cooking, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And um, I was I was in the biology program in organic chemistry and I kind of created a bad toxic gas that resulted in them having to clear out the floor. And, um, <laughs> And uh, I wasn't in good shape for passing organic chemistry after that. And in the meanwhile, I had been taking psychology classes my whole time that I was there just for fun. And uh, matter of fact, uh, a class in abnormal psychology I taught, I took, and it was it was later in the night. It was taught by someone who was doing practice with severe mental illness with people with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. I couldn't get enough of that class. And so the combination of realizing that chemistry was not my jam and that I had to make it through that year and had to probably do a little bit of saving face to try and get back in the program and still pass. 
with the idea that psychology was really natural to me was kind of what gravitated me originally towards psychology. So, and in my 20 years or so of teaching at college, I've realized that a lots of folks start off in pre-med and then move their way forward. So it's a pretty common path. Although I don't think a lot of people have to evacuate an OCHEM lab to make that happen. So. <laughs> um, how I got involved in what I did, though, is I, I actually didn't major in clinical psychology or in psychology as an undergrad. I majored in a field called social ecology. So I wasn't sure it was what I wanted to do. So I worked, um, took a gap, two gap years, and I worked in post-acute head injury rehabilitation for people with traumatic brain injuries. I loved it. Um, and I thought I wanted to do neuropsychology. Um, and I, but I needed to take the classes to get into a doctoral program because I didn't need them. So I went to San Diego State and they had a master's program in clinical psych that allowed me to get there. And just by happenstance, I wound up wanting to work with one professor who was doing work with kids. And he's like, you know, I don't have grant funding, but I have somebody at UCSD who does. And she was doing this really cool project looking at what about teens that were in drug treatment? What happens to their brains, their neuropsych recovery of function? after treatment? Do they heal or do they have residual cognitive deficits? And my background in biology, my background in working in head injury was a really nice fit. And so I wound up working with, with her. And then when it came time for graduate school, her advisor was down at South Florida. And so that's how I got handed over. And eventually um, he wound up heading a national initiative along with a, another individual on under, under, underage drinking and college student drinking. And that's how I kind of found my path. So I would love to say that all my life, all I ever wanted to be was this, but I kind of fell into a path that wound up being a really nice trajectory for me. Yeah, wow. That's super interesting. I feel like a lot of people go into college, you know, assuming that they're going to be one thing and probably leave with a whole different idea in mind, which is pretty yeah. cool. Um, yeah, so um, I actually, one of my really good friends um, is a psychologist and um, we've been friends since elementary school and she didn't know she was going to be a psychologist going into college either, but it was out of circumstance and her own substance abuse issues that um, led her in that direction. And then she wanted to help other people um, that had experiences like she did. So yeah. um so I, I'm, I'm mixing up the, the terminology, So I, I, or maybe I'm not mixing it up. I just want to clarify. Is there a difference um, in the words when you use the words addiction versus substance use disorder versus substance abuse? Is there a right way to say it? There's no right way to say it, but there's, I think, a respectful way to say it is the way that I think about it. So they're all the right term, and they all kind of boil down to the fact that there's some folks who, for a variety of different reasons... They, they don't handle substances the same way other folks do. Um, the, way I like, the way I think about it after having done work in, in substance abuse treatment is there, for some people, their drug of choice is more, right? Um, and there's some people that can take it or leave it. And so I think when we think about the issue of substance use, particularly in college students, it's on a continuum, right? So the terms that you're using, I think, reflect that. Like addiction is the idea that for me, your body is no longer in control of you managing the substance, right? So you have, um, when you stop using, you go through withdrawal. Um, you had developed a tolerance, which is actually kind of a tricky thing with college students because tolerance can actually kind of be a good thing, right? You're not the cheap drunk in the room. And that way, 
you feel like maybe if somebody comes at you and wants to maybe try and get on on with you, you're more in control of your facilities, you're less likely to be taken advantage of. But tolerance is our body's way of saying, hey, we're getting used to this and we want a little bit more to feel the same thing. So those two things I think of when you, they cross over to the fact of where when you need the drug to function, like you go through actual withdrawal, that's that's really kind of the model of dependency and, and addictions when your body's kind of taken over and when your your life is taken over, become unmanageable. Um, substance use disorders is actually a really technical term because um, for those of you that are psychology majors, and if you've taken abnormal, you know that there's a book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM-5. It's currently in the 5TR, text revision version. And um, that actually has a criteria. There are specific things that you need to check off. And if you check those things off, then you meet criteria for either mild, moderate, or severe use disorder. What's super interesting, though, is quantity is nowhere there. It's all functional consequences. So someone can come and, and drink like a fish. And I think we all know people like that in college, right? They come and they just hold their liquor and they can slam down 12 shots and they, nothing happens. And they wake up the next morning and they get straight A's and their parents are chill with it. That's not a problem, according to the DSM. So it's different. Um, and then the idea of abuse is, the, is sort of overlapping with that. And that's when you start to have problems. So, and those problems can be stuff like, you know, people saying, hey, look, you know, you kind of blacked out last night and you've been blacking out a lot and maybe that's a problem. Maybe you should look into this or, you know, when you get drunk, you do dumb things or you say things that are really mean and hurtful and you're going to lose your friends um, or they get behind the wheel and they shouldn't. So this idea that it's kind of the same terms, but we use them a little bit that way. In, in my own work, I actually try and choose the to use the word substance user because it sort of encompasses people who they might do a dumb thing or two every now and then, but they're still by and large responsible. But it can all the way go up to the folks who are misusing the substance and then they transcend in that problem stuff that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. Speaking of blacking out, um, I was... I, I became aware of an, a term um, just this past Thanksgiving. You know, we've always had like um, Black Black Friday. Apparently yeah. there's a Blackout Wednesday. I'm not sure if you, how you've heard that, Amy. I have heard of it. Is it, is it right before... It's right before it's, at like Lent or something like that. Was it? No, right? no. This it's, is this is right before Thanksgiving. The college okay. students come home to hang out with their friends, and they joke that the Wednesday before Thanksgiving is Blackout Wednesday. I've also heard of it happening right around Mardi Gras. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, so speaking of blacking out, what yeah. is happening when people black out? Like, what is happening? in their brain? Why are things forgotten? Um, why do, yeah. Yeah. What would you, what would you consider blacking out and what is happening in the brain in layman's terms? Yeah. So we've actually done a little bit of work. We have a couple of publications on this stuff. So I can talk like the scientist or I can talk a little more layman. What would you like me to talk? I think layman for our audience. Okay. <laughs> so, so Essentially, what happens is, is blacking out is, is what your body does, your brain does when you drink so much alcohol that it disrupts your brain's ability to take information from short-term memory into long-term memory. So we all go through, for those of you that have taken psychology courses, you know that memory kind of follows a chain of events, right? 
it, there's sensation and perception where it comes into your brain and then it encodes and then it goes to short-term memory, right? So you've got some hottie at the bar and you're trying to remember their name, right? And so you want to remember their name. Maybe you recite it a few times, but then you get distracted because somebody's telling you something else and you come back and you can't remember it, right? Well, that's short-term memory. So that's at memory. Everybody has all the time. We use it functionally. And there's a reason why memory goes away. And then memory, then if it goes to long-term, it goes through a process called LTP or long-term potentiation. And it happens, it's the process of taking those short-term memories and then making them long-term. So they're there. Okay. And that happens in response to an amino acid neurotransmitter and it's called glutamate. And so these things happen in, in response when you drink too much alcohol or a lot of alcohol, I don't know what you would call too much, that ability to take information from short-term store to long-term memory gets disrupted. And so the interesting thing about blackouts is that to you or me, if we were drinking and we were getting blackout drunk, I, I would look sloppy, but you couldn't tell that I wasn't encoding that memory. Okay. So the next day, you wake up and go, I don't know what happened to me. You know, for those for those of you that are older and understand Pink Floyd, you know, I don't know. I was really drunk at the time kind of thought. Mm -hmm. um, and that that process that was disrupted. And so some people think about blackout drunk with like I'm going to get really drunk. But blackout drunk is actually when we lose that memory. And there's two different kinds. So the technical terms of them are um, called a partial or an on block. You can also think of them as fragmentaries or grayouts versus blackouts. So a grayout or a fragmentary or a partial is you're you're drinking, you're having fun, you wake up in the morning and you're like, hey, I remember being at the bar, I remember kind of walking home, and then I woke up the next morning and there's pieces I don't know about. Okay, that's a that's a grayout. A blackout is like, wow, I went out and I woke up and there's this, and I don't know what happened. Okay. So there's a little bit of a difference with that. And I think a lot of folks use the term, like I'm going to get blackout drunk and maybe they're not at those thresholds too. It's kind of like, I'm going to use it to get rage and drunk versus, you know, there's actually something going on where you don't, you're not actually laying down that new memory. And scary part is like when you're in the moment and you're blacked out, other people can't tell. Yeah. So that becomes super scary because you could be sitting there offering to do something and not have any memory of it in the morning. Mm -hmm. And that's a that's a, one of the concerns with getting blackout drunk is you can be consensual in your activity in the moment and then realize you're not actually, you actually were not in a state cognitively where you could provide that kind of, of consent for your behavior. Right, yeah. Is there, so that in itself is scary. Is there something um, scary happening in your brain that, that short-term to long-term disruption, is there some, any kind of permanent damage happening? Or um, yeah, if you black out multiple times, does it something get worse and worse? You know, what's interesting is we don't, the answer is we don't know, okay? Because partially we can't sit there in the lab and induce like, hey, Nadia, come on into my lab and I'm gonna get you blackout <laughs> drunk every week and we're gonna test your cognition, right? Uh -huh. So we're relying on what folks say, um, but we do know a couple things. We know, for example, if you have blacked out in the past, you're more likely to black out again. Your, your brain is essentially primed a little bit to black out again. And so if you blacked out once and you drink heavily, you're more likely to black out again. 
But the interesting thing with all that too, is that a novice drinker, someone who, we all know these people, they, they were really good kids in high school. They didn't, they wanted to get into the college of their dreams. And then they get into college and they're like, what was I waiting for? I'm going to go hard, right? Mm -hmm. Well, they might actually black out at less alcohol per black uh, blood alcohol concentration compared to someone who's got some experience in high school. So it's kind of a mixed bag. Like it's possible. There was a study that was done way back in 1970 before the institutional review boards were really tight with this. Mm -hmm. And he actually took a bunch of people, this, um, this study, this gentleman took a bunch of people who were alcoholics. That was the term back at the time and got them blackout drunk and then looked at what their blood alcohol concentrations were. And their blood alcohol <laughs> concentrations were somewhere between 0.20 and 0.23. So pretty drunk. But what he also found is that folks who had prior experience, didn't have prior experience, were novice drinkers, they could black out as a little of 0.10 to 0.12. So that's a <laughs> lot less alcohol. So your, your question's kind of challenging because it really, my, my favorite answer in psychology is always, it depends. And, and it really does. But if you blacked out once, you're more likely to black out again. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, maybe that term blackout Wednesday is not to, you know, glorify blacking out because I mean, for me, like that's scary. Like, I don't think and talking to friends and all that, like if someone, if one of my friends black, blacks out one night, like they are going to wake up the next morning and be like, I'm never going to drink again. Like, I don't want to do that ever again. Um, but yeah, it's still scary because everyone is, you know just kind of testing it out and doing, you know, going crazy because it's like they, that's what they associate college with. Um, I remember somebody, I remember somebody saying, like blacking out and the next morning saying, well, I'm, I guess I had a good time and felt pretty happy about it. And I'm like, wow, how can you not be like regret that you drank so much that you blacked out? But this person was just like, well, at least I know I had a good time. I, I, I've uh, been doing this long enough that I, I also have found folks that have said, you know, cost of doing business at a great night. And this is just what it is. So I think, I think what you're talking about, Nadia, though, is the fact that everybody's wired a little different, right? Mm. Um, yeah. You know, it's easy to think about if you think about food, right? So mm. if I, I sat there and I put super spicy chicken wings in front of you and you weren't vegetarian or vegan and you did like mm. chicken wings, you might go, how hot are they? Right. And then there's people that are like, how hot are they? Yeah. You know, like they're in there. Yeah. So that sensation seeking part is really, there's personality variables too that, that yeah. there's just different ways people are wired. And for some people more is more is good. Right. And like testing those limits. And um, we even have, you know, there's folks too, that are like, I'm going to do this now because I'm going to have to adult come out when I get out of school. And when I adult, it's going to be a whole lot harder for me to do this. Mm -hmm. So I think it's not even as simple as like the idea of like, oh, that's got consequences. There's some people that are like, well, it's that time of life. I'm going to live through those right. consequences because when I'm 30 and I'm partnered up and I maybe have a kid that mm -hmm. I can't do that anymore. So, right. you know, it, it's, it's a weird interaction between like doing it, having the exposure, having the people around you that are going to support that and say, hey, that's cool. And yeah. and then also having that personality that says, you know what, I'm that sounds like something I want to try again. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, okay, so my next question is, is there a threshold amount of a substance before someone becomes 
um, chemically or psychologically addicted or is it not really that simple? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's not that simple, you know, for all the reasons that kind of we talked about too, like mm -hmm. there's differences in how people's bodies process drugs. Um, there's different enzymes in our livers. There's different tolerances. Um, if you have a strong family history of addiction, you may not actually show the effects of a drug until you're more intoxicated. So you might need to take more to feel the same as somebody else. Mm -hmm. So it's part of the reason why when, if, if somebody comes in and says, I think I have a problem with substances, a, a counselor or a psychologist might ask how much, but they're really looking at the consequences, not the quantity. And that's important. Oh, that's, yeah. I guess, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so my next question is, if you have two people drinking the same amount of alcohol with the same frequency, how can one person become addicted while the other one doesn't? I guess this kind of goes into just everyone who really depends on the person and you know, family yeah. history and all that. But it's yeah. hard, I know, in a college setting where you're like, you're trying to keep up with like your friends or, you know, everyone's like, oh, let's go take a shot. So you're doing it because everyone else is doing it. So in a college setting, that's a lot harder to um, go through. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I think that it, I mean, I wish if we could answer that question, we'd solve a lot of problems, right? Because we could tell folks, hey, look, you know, you you probably shouldn't do this. Or it might even be more nuanced with like, hey, your family has a problem with alcohol, but not with another substance. Maybe you want to mm -hmm. think this through. I, you know, I wish I could answer that question. I, I think the it comes back to sort of it depends. Right. Um, yeah. What I would tell folks, though, if they were asking my advice is, you know, if your mom and dad or mom, one of your parents had a pretty serious problem with addiction, was in treatment, was in recovery, that you might, you're, you might actually find that what those substances do for you is a little bit different biologically. Um, it might, you might also have differences in what you think a substance is going to do. Those are called expectancies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you come in thinking a drug is going to be like cool, uh, absolutely magical for you and transformative, the first time you try it, it's going to be more magical and transformative because it's a placebo effect. And mm -hmm. so that's another thing too, to be kind of mindful for, um, is there's a, it's not just even like, oh, you have a family history, you have a problem. It's not that yeah. simple, you know? Yeah. So there's a lot of, I think though, like part of exploration and part of being a college student is figuring out mm -hmm. who you are and what you, what you do well and what maybe you shouldn't do. And that trial mm -hmm. and error is kind of what, what I think is cool about college makes right. so much more than a classroom. Right. And right. I think that substances become part of that for some people, mm -hmm. right. They, they test the limits. And I think there's some people that listen to those limits and some people who try and push through those limits. And that's right. maybe part of what you're talking about is mm -hmm. if you're someone, I think that always likes to push the limit. Like if some is good, more is better. Mm -hmm. That you might want to just check like, Hey, last time I was out, I drank 12 shots. I felt like, you know, heck, you know, I felt like hell the next morning, uh -huh. but I'm going to try 15 the next time. Right. That's the kind of person that, you know, you yeah. want to maybe say, hey, check it a little bit. You know, this might become a problem. Okay. Yeah. So like if someone, it's when that's like, I feel like there's like a, there's a small uh, like line between, you know, a substance use issue and also 
you know, just trial and like error, just exploring college. And I think it's um, helpful to like be mindful of, you know, the choices that you're making. Yeah. Um, did you want to move on to your other question about parents? Oh, yeah. Um, I guess the question is, what can a parent do if they think their child is drinking too much or smoking too much? Um, how do they step in and give advice without making it worse or trying to, you know, elicit or, or, or without listening a response from the child saying it's not a big deal and the child not talking about it anymore. And by child, I mean like adult child, you know, um, what, what can the, there's, there's this interesting thing when your adult child goes to college and you're balancing, like you used to be able to advise them a ton and that was what your role was, but now they're, they're supposed to be responsible for themselves. And that's an important thing for them to learn too. But, um, substance abuse is, or substance use over substance use is something that you don't want to go too far. So when do you step in and how do you step in? Yeah. It hits close to home too. Cause, uh, uh Lisa knows my, I have an, I have a college freshman now too, <laughs> and had to launch him halfway across country. And, these moments about where do you step in? What's good? And, you know, it's tough, right? Because we also don't know the full story, right? Especially if, if you're out of the home, you're living on your own for the first time, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't, your parents aren't always there knowing exactly what's going on. So sometimes too, it's, it's hard to tell as a parent when to intervene. And it's a really hard question. And I think part of it has to come to what's the parent's view on, what substances are like in their lives, right? And and being honest and kind of checking with what are they like in your life too? Because like, if you come home every day and you're like, I've had a hard day and you drink a half a bottle of wine in front of your kids, mm-hmm. you're teaching your kids that's a coping mechanism, right? Whether you, I mean, it's well-intentioned, you might be well under control with it, but it's still something we model to our kids. And then, you know, most college students, they've, they've had some experience with alcohol before going to college too. So they kind of have an idea. Maybe parents know about the extent of that idea. Maybe they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I think an open line of communication and honesty is a really good start about then getting to how do you approach this? And I think checking in in a non-defensive way with your kids is an important way to do this. And, and how I think it, the first thing I say is if you tell your kids, no, you tell them anything, no. What's the first thing they want to do? And that's exactly the thing you told them no to, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I hope I haven't lost you guys. Um, you know, I think yeah. with my kids, if, if I told my kids like, hey, look, I don't want you to go to In-N-Out, the burger place, and order mm-hmm. a four-by-four. And my 18-year-old's my a football player. He's going to come home with that four-by-four with a big old smile on his face like I just got <laughs> one over on you, right? And so yeah. you don't want to be in that kind of a relationship either. And so it becomes tricky. Um, but you also want your kids safe, right? If they're blacking mm-hmm. out, if they've had a sexual encounter while they've been drinking that they're not quite sure is consensual, if mm-hmm. they've had an overdose and had to be transported to the hospital, um, if they've gotten a DUI, or something like that, or an alcohol policy violation on campus. These are meaningful and they add mm-hmm. up. And so, you know, I think as a parent, you have to think about what your view is on alcohol, what you're modeling to them, and then try and do it in a way that doesn't shut them out, I think is the, the bottom line of how I get to that. Like if you say, hey, don't drink till you're 21 and you're sitting there with a glass of wine in your hand, 
-hmm. it's kind of a, a mixed message for your kids, right? Um, on the same extent, you don't want your kid going, mom, I think I was assaulted last night and I don't remember. Mm -hmm. So there's this balance between them. Um, I would say that the, to get to your question, Lisa, is, is you need to have that communication with your kids about the fact that we know that substances are on campus and I'm talking about alcohol, but there's a lot of stuff on campus. And if you're going to do it, make sure that you do it in a way that is safe. And if it's not safe as a parent, even though you're an adult, I'm going to intervene because I love and because I care. And if you have that kind of relationship, hopefully they'll come to you before they call and say they're in jail with a DUI or that they are in the ER because they've just been transported and had to have fluids and had to have their stomach pumped, mm -hmm. um, you know, or worse, you know, so that's kind of the balance of it. I'm not answering your question because I don't know if there is an answer, I guess, is part of what I'm getting at. Like there's sometimes like advice about what to say, you know, rules of engagement when you're talking with certain people and having conflict yeah. with people. Like, do you start with, I'm concerned that, or do you think that, or um, um, how's this going for you? Like, what's the kind of direction that you start with? Do you start with, I, I'm concerned that blah, 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 an I statement or a questioning statement? I think if you put it on yourself, you take the blame away from the other person, right? Mm -hmm. So if you say like, you know, I, it might just be me, but I'm concerned that I've noticed you, you've been, you've been drinking more. Maybe they're coming home from school and you notice that on break, they're drinking a lot, you know, and I'm just checking in with you because I love you and I care about you. I'm worried that maybe you're drinking a, a little bit more frequently, a little bit more, a little bit more each time you drink a little bit more bowl, maybe. Um, my worry is that um, this can have consequences that can be pretty severe for you. Um, if you put it in like, I think you are, the first thing you're going to do is put your college student on the defensive, right? Because you're going to go, hey, not me. No, I'm cool. You know, or or I've heard stuff like, yeah, I drink heavily, but I'm on it. I've got my wingman. I've always got someone I go home with. I've always mm -hmm. got, I'm, I'm drinking water in between. I'm good with this. And the one thing you don't want to do is have it become something that's closeted or secretive, because as soon as that happens, now you've broken that line of communication. Mm -hmm. And when something really bad does happen, they may feel they can't come to you. So, but this is a parenting, I'm, I'm, I'm replying more as a parent than as a, a clinician because, mm -hmm. you know, reality is in working with 18 year olds, if a parent comes and says, I'm concerned, well, they don't hold consent anymore, right? I can talk that over with my client who is the 18 year old or 19 year old or 20 year old college student. But the parent doesn't necessarily come in the picture. I don't even have the legal right to be able to talk to them without a release of information. Mm -hmm. And so that's really where the strength of the relationship comes in. But I do think if you're a parent and you're concerned, not saying anything is probably the worst thing you can do, right? Because then you're kind of implicitly saying it's okay. You know, mm -hmm. especially if you, you talk before going to school about glorifying, like back in the day, you know, this is what happened. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of other, there's movies that are out there too that still glorify this idea of going hard in college because it's that time you can. And you want to make sure that you're saying, you know, that's okay, but there can be a, a version of too hard. And I want to check in before something really bad happens to you. Mm -hmm. right. And if there is, you know, saying, hey, I'm worried because you're telling me this, are, are you drinking enough to black out? You know, and, and I know you might think this is 
cool or fun, but this is the kind of stuff that can cause long-term problems. I'm worried about you. Can we talk this through? That might be the way that as a parent, I might tackle that with my child if, if that were the way it would go. And if they were amenable to it, what would the first steps be? Because I feel like if you approach somebody and you say that you're concerned about something like using too much of a substance, they might be willing to talk about it with you, but might be scared that the result is going to be that they're going to be told that they can't drink anymore ever, you know? And so there's a step between that where maybe things can be kind of fixed where, you know, you're not having to cut out alcohol for the rest of your life, but you're learning how to manage it in a more responsible, healthy way. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like a learner's permit for drinking in some respects, right? Yeah. You know, we think about it like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that's a really important step because especially with, with folks that are younger, if you tell them you can never do something again in your life, that's not, that's not real palatable to a lot of folks. Right. And particularly something that's like such a part of our culture. All you have to do is watch the Super Bowl to see how much a part of the culture substances are. Right. So I think that first step is to check in and say, I'm, I'm worried about how much I'm worried about how I'm worried about how often those, those three kind of pieces. And that's where like, You know, I'm always worried about like drinking games can be really, they can be fun or they can be really dangerous. Mm. A lot of folks think they're pre-gaming to be safe, but they may actually not. We published something that showed that a lot of 18 year old college women pre-game and they'd go hard because they think at least I know what's in my drink. And the bottom line is they had the same amount of problems as people who did other things like that. So it might even be starting to kind of tweak how you're doing it. Like, okay, I'm not telling you no, but you know, how can you do it safer? Um, You know, how can you like, don't go and play a targeted and skilled drinking game like Thumper, knowing you're going to be the victim there and drinking too much, right? Um, Don't, don't get involved with that. If if you know that you're going to go to your friends and you're going to pregame before every basketball game, and that's what's doing you in, make up a convenient excuse and tell them you'll meet them at the game. you know, it's, there's ways to sort of pare back without totally checking out. And for mm-hmm. some folks, there was a, a study that was done like 25 years ago that looked at the 18 to 24 year old age group and looked at like how many are drinking hard at 18 and continue to drink hard at 22, 23. And very few, like one in five did. So that meant four out of five figured it out, right? Or they, they just, it wasn't in their game. And so some of that figuring out is knowing where to dial down naturally. But if you go in and treat it with like, you have a problem, you need to go to AA, you need to be abstinence focused. There's some people that, yeah, that is the proper course. Their, their addiction, their use has gotten to the point of where it's beyond their control. And that, Mm -hmm. that is a, that's something that needs to be held space for. But for other folks dialing down, helps take away the consequences while still letting the fun in and, you know, or the perceived fun from using. And so I think that's, that part there is, is something we can do, you know, and it can be simple stuff with like not engaging in drinking games, not crossfading. Crossfading is really dangerous too, because it alters the way alcohol and cannabis factor into your body. Um, and pre-gaming is not always safe. Yeah. You do know what's in your drink, but like one study I did at a local university, the um, sex assigned at birth females were drinking three drinks 
in 15 minutes before going out and having another three. The average blood alcohol content was like 0.14 or 0.15. They were really drunk. You know, so if you took that pre-gaming part out, that would keep their drinking safer, right? Mm. So I think, Nadia, maybe you can say, is it pre-gaming because it's safer or because it's less expensive? Like, what would you say? Why is that happening? Um, I think for a lot of different reasons. I feel like maybe for me and my friends personally, I think that showing up to, like, whatever wherever you're going in... Um, not as drunk as everyone else or like just not drunk at all is a little bit um makes the experience not as fun which i i don't know but i guess like it is it also could be cheaper also is safer um so it's like breaking that like social like a, weirdness the awkwardness yeah. yeah 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 but i have realized i don't know i think i've it, me and my friends have come to realize that it's not always necessary. I feel like e even if you do, if you do engage in that, sometimes it's not even like you're, you're just like you said before, just drinking as much as you did 15 minutes before, just because you're in a different setting and you know, then you're, I don't know, there's just, you're hung over the next day and it wasn't really that worth it. So it's, I don't know. I think it's also part of the, um, <laughs> exploring college process but I don't know it's interesting to hear about you know the effects of it be careful is my I mean that's my momism but my professional mm -hmm. um you know it's really interesting like um when I was when I was in college long long time ago cannabis was actually less addictive than it is now and the reason why is because they've genetically engineered cannabis to where it's more potent dabs make it a whole lot more concentrated, right? Um, so even like saying, oh, I'm just going to go to weed. Well, cannabis is a lot different than it was 20, 30 years ago, too. So it's important to keep in mind. But the other stuff, once we cross over into Molly X, um, I'll go even as far, you know, cocaine, heroin, fentanyl. The, the issue is you don't always know what you're getting, right? Um, there's mm -hmm. places up here, for example, in the Bay Area, there's an organization called Dance Safe. And what they do is they'll actually test your drugs before you go into a rave. And because a lot of times you don't know what's mixed there. And now, quite honestly, the fentanyl stuff scares me. It scares me as a mm. mom. It scares me as a professional because you could be thinking you're getting one thing and you're getting something completely different. And mm -hmm. the difference with fentanyl is it's not just upping your game. It's a really potent substance. So literally, it may take that much heroin to overdose. It may take, you can, I can't even make my fingers small enough for fentanyl. Mm -hmm. And so um, the issue, if you want to kind of, you know, taste or dip or however you want to call it, is you really need to make sure you know what you're getting if you're going to try it. Um, because you don't know what it's laced with. Okay. Uh, and that's the big issue is, I, I think there was a high profile a few years ago of a bunch of cadets from one of the academies who went down to Florida and they went there for spring break and they thought they were getting one thing and they got another and there were some overdoses. Um, so that's that's not the kind of story or narrative you want to weave, right? Right. And and the bottom line is it's it's it becomes more dangerous, right? As soon as you have more hands touching a substance, it becomes more dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, other stuff too, like if you want to go and use Xanax or you know bars, and you drink, now all of a sudden those two things biologically impact the same level. 
So it's not like I'm having a Xanax and I'm having a drink. I'm having a Xanax and I'm having a drink. So you're going to get a lot drunker. And unless you really know how that your body's going to respond, that can be a pretty dangerous moment. So I, I would just say, you know, folks that are thinking about or are experimenting with other substances, there's other layers of risk. You know, alcohol, cannabis to some extent, they're just more regulated. So we know more, like, you know, if you're going to have a beer, you know, how much is a standard drink versus a shot of tequila, right? Versus if you, if you have, you know, cocaine, you don't know what it's laced with. So you don't know what the potency is. You don't know what the interactions are going to be. And I think that's, that's a part I would say, you you know, you, you want to be really careful, really, really careful. If someone is going to, to do that, that's their choice point, but they should try and be as safe as they possibly can with it. Mm-hmm. Um, my own thoughts are, you know, I, I'm sending my, my child off to school. Don't, don't mess with that. You, you don't need that. That's just another layer of risk to not have to factor in. But there are some people yeah. that are going to take that layer of risk. And then the one thing is if they are, that's what harm reduction is, is keeping it safe. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know who's selling it to you, you don't know what's been cut with, you know, you don't have experience with it. Those are all recipes for potential really bad outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. And there are fentanyl test strips now, so you can go out and get these. Um, and it's, it's amazing. Um, I, I don't have a lot of touch points with this, but if I were providing in the community right now, I would have one in my purse that literally you just put it up. It's like a little dip strip. You can see, does it contain fentanyl? That's, Mm. that's huge. So if people are, you know, that's something they want to do. Those strips are available. Um, the other thing I was, I actually sent my own kid off with a Narcan pen, not that he would ever use it, but I don't want to be in a situation if he's in the dorm and someone's overdosing, I, from a harm reduction standpoint, I want to make sure my child is prepared and knows what's to do. Um, and that's just a personal choice point for me. Um, because that's the reality we live in right now is those drugs are out there and they're scary and those effects are much more dangerous. Yeah. 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 And you never know, right? You could be just walking home late from the library one night and someone could be passed out. Right. And they could be in an, they could be in an opiate emergency. And Mm -hmm. if you're able to provide that service, you know, that's, that's a game changer for that person. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's very scary. Um, Okay. So for my last question, um, what do you wish every student would know about substance usage before going to college or, you know, any advice that you would like them to take away from this conversation? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, what I wish they would know. Um, I guess I, 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 I would wish it's a hard one for me to answer. Um, partially cause <laughs> I was thinking about it from my own personal view now of having a college student as well. You know, I, I wish that they would know that you can have fun in a lot of different ways, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that for people who want to use substances, that can be part of the fun. Um, I wish that folks would know, though, where their limits were and know when to stop. And I wish they would. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we don't know that. So that's kind of part of the issue. Um, but I, I wish that people could have the opportunity to have fun, however that fun is, but be able to have enough awareness to know when to say when, if that makes sense. 
yeah yeah thank you so much again for coming on the podcast I really really enjoyed this conversation yeah yeah thank you for having me um you know I hope I hope everybody you know finds this information helpful not preachy um (laughs) you know and you know to to understand to that college is a time to have fun and enjoy but it's also a time to be safe and and be healthy too if you're hearing this message you've listened to the entire episode and for that we want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts be sure to subscribe and stay tuned for more discussions about health self-care and embracing the power of being women until next time